Hello and welcome to this, the fifth Cap Gemini training podcast. In this session, we're going to be talking about training delivery. I'm Clive Barber. I'm going to be joined by my colleagues, Mandy Lenheim, Ollie Button and Paul Duggins. We're all part of Cap Gemini's BTC Business Transformation Consulting Practice. <laughs> right, well, let's, let's do this then. So we're going to be talking about training delivery. So there's the traditional classroom delivery and then all the newfangled technology that we're all kind of using to a greater or lesser degree. Here's a, here's a first question for you. Do you think traditional classroom training is dead? Mm. Yes and no. Great, we can move on then. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Are you recording? Yeah. We do this every time. <laughs> Somebody always asks, "Are you recording?" Yeah. I can't see. I can't see it being recorded. Yeah, it's being recorded. Okay, cool. Are you recording it directly through audio? Yes. Yeah, it's You're going. Not, like, yes. recording the Skype meeting. It's through Skype into yeah into Hindenburg. So yes, I can see oh. the uh, the lines going up and down as yeah. we speak. Well, it's going pretty well so far, I think. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so shall I ask the question again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you, I think, are you? Are you? I was just going to answer it then. <laughs> Should we decide who's who's going to answer it? Go on, Paul. Shall I answer this one? Go on then. So, is traditional classroom training dead? No, I don't think it is dead. I think it's just that it's now complemented by lots of other uh, delivery techniques and methods. So, I think we probably—it's true to say that we do less of it, but I don't think it has any less less validity. Um, it's just complemented by lots of other n- new, more more interesting, perhaps, or, or more or more remote, or you know, more better use of technology. But it, it's still there, and it, I think it'll have its place for a, for a long time. Mandy, you were gonna—are you gonna expand on your yes and no answer? I think um, overall, I think it. It isn't dead, and I think Paul's quite right. There, it is a compliment, but it seems to be less and less people are interested in the face-to-face classroom training now, and more into getting it really quickly, getting the information really quickly. But currently working on a secure project or a government project, and the demographic there is such that all they want is face-to-face training. So it's quite um, you can't kind of do a big sigh because it's a lot of information and it's not the sort of material that you'd want to do face-to-face. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. And I think there's, so for example, skills training, I think is really useful to do in the classroom. Whereas you can't learn a skill, you can't learn, you know, a manual dexterity type skill or a professional business skill, if you like, where you have to do role plays. It's far more difficult to do that online. Whereas you can actually do it very easily in, in, in a classroom, which is the ideal environment. I, I still believe that, the right place, to, the best place to do training is in a classroom with a, a well-designed and written course with a, with a professional trainer. That's still my starting point. And I think anything after that is, you know, kind of dealing with constraints of budget or time or distance and that type of thing. I think Mandy's point about the demographic is pretty important as well. So different people will respond better to different things. And if you have an organisation where there's perhaps an older general uh, average then you might find that they are more used to classroom training. Whereas if you get a load of young new graduates, then they might have gone through school already being exposed to a lot of different types of learning. So interactive, online learning, those kind of things. So um, that's something that has to be considered as well as the subject matter. Yeah, Clive, you you made an interesting point there that, that just to pick up on, and that was that the term professional trainer and 
that also adds to the mix as well because a lot of the organisations we tend to work with don't see the value, I think, more and more of classroom training because they choose not to take us up on our offer to, to deliver the training for them and they prefer to do it themselves and effectively that means they get substandard quality training because what they believe is classroom training is not really professional quality training in many cases, is it? I mean, I'm not going to cite any specific examples, but we've all seen examples where they choose to train it themselves and it's not really done very well. It's not really very interactive. The people are not professional trainers that are doing the delivery. They might be a subject matter expert or somebody who's just been roped in to do it. And, and that is sadly, I think, more and more, that's one of the reasons why more and more organisations no longer see the value of training in a classroom in a face-to-face. It's expensive to set up. It takes time to do it well, and often it isn't done that well. Just referring back to the point about uh, new technologies uh, being more scalable and reusable, so classroom training, I suppose, is the most expensive, possibly, of uh, of uh, forms of training to deliver, whereas if you develop an e-learning module, it can be used infinite numbers of times. Um, so I think that's possibly what people look at rather than the actual effectiveness of the of the output. The other thing to think about is that obviously with bite-sized pieces of e-learning or electronic learning is that you can get at the point of need. Then you you know you could argue well, actually you don't need to do any classroom training for IT systems because the help and the instruction is there available exactly when you need it. But I still think there is a place for that initial classroom training where you address new ways of doing things new processes and incidentally this is you know the part of the system that you need to use to do it and this is how you do it yeah so i think you're getting in then to what is the correct blend of training and i don't like the word blend but i think it's inevitable in what we do that you do have to blend for the training so what what is a good typical blend for training delivery so um when we, we went on the uh, tap course a while ago and one of the things they were talking about in the learning needs analysis was around identifying the frequency of tasks and the complexity of tasks to develop a plan for what's the best way of training them so if there's a task that's only going to be performed once a year for example then it may be that you don't necessarily want to train people in that upfront because they'll then completely forget about how to do it they might need something a bit more at the point of need but if there's something that's a more regular repeatable task then it maybe is better to get them get them in a classroom face to face and really drill that skill into them how have software tools changed training delivery do you think well we now have the ability to be able to emulate a classroom delivery environment remotely don't we with uh, some of the products out there that have been around honestly now for a while things like webex allow you to set up a virtual classroom but again i think that's got its place and it's no it's not a full substitute for being in front of people in the same physical location in the same classroom but it but it has a place it has a role to play definitely the one thing i'm going to add was i think it also requires a unique set of skills as a trainer to deliver effective training over uh, uh, something like a, a remote you know so something like a web absolutely well did you do the um lpi course in online delivery yes i did and um Although I've had a lot of positives from that, there was also some stuff that actually mm. I'm not sure I fully agreed with. So it was interesting and it was worthwhile doing it. But um, yeah, there was positives and negatives that come out for me. I thought it was good. I mean, there's some really simple things like using all the tool, you know, all the tool set that is available within the applications to actually get that interaction going. Mm. I did actually quite... I quite like that and I think I've actually applied a lot of those that knowledge and skills in in just you know standard communication stuff as well yeah and I think 
I think the concept of, you know, in, from the design principles to have good instructional design, you know, and, and to m make stuff more visual, definitely, and, and to maintain lots of interaction with um, uh, the attendees, that's all really good. And we know that's good and that, that's what we should be doing. Yeah. So on uh, on my current project, we've, we're moving to Teams a lot more um, because it does a lot of stuff all in one, whereas Skype is specifically a you know, communication tool, but people using Teams as a document hub for, for chat, for general updates of our projects, so a sort of Yammer style as well. Okay. So it's quite a good one-stop shop. So let, let's move back to classroom training then. What do you think the most important techniques are for delivering effective traditional classroom training? So when I first did my training on how to deliver classroom training the big takeaway for me was about questions and different different types of questions to prompt engagement from people so um, I forget exactly how many there were but we learned a range of different question types some of which will be directly to an individual some of which will be open to the room some of which we will not necessarily expect anyone to know the answer those kind of things and it's just different ways of keeping people involved and engaging by directly focusing the attention away from the trainer onto the classroom. Yeah pose pause pounce was one of my favorite ones so you you ask a question so overhead to everybody, leave it for a few moments to give people a chance to think, and then and then you name an individual. You don't really pounce on them. You do it fairly gently. But by the time you've done that two or three times, it has the effect of everybody thinking, well, actually, it could be me next. So I need to keep thinking and have an answer ready just in case it comes back to me. You don't always have to use that technique because, you know, if you're lucky, you've got everybody in the classroom is willing and, and wants to contribute anyway. And then it's a case of more of managing the people in the classroom and, and sort of sharing the, the knowledge sharing amongst them. So you have to find the right balance between um, uh, sort of know-it-all, answering all of the questions and giving everyone the opportunity to ask the question so sometimes you have to maybe shut someone down a little bit if they're monopolizing so the other thing i was thinking about was um this whole experiential thing i wrote a little paper on it actually which is on linkedin clive barber on linkedin you can find it where it talks about the importance of actually getting people to do things and then reflecting on what they've done. So there's a whole bunch of techniques you can actually... And you need to plan this into your training. What you have to get away from is people lecturing in training, people thinking... First thing, a lot of technical people will think, well, it's a half-day course and we need 30 slides. As soon as somebody starts talking like that, you know that it's going to be awful training, it's just going to be lecturing. So you basically need to plan into your training things like getting actual hands-on, maybe build a case study. So you you know, you know you start with a, a business challenge at the start of the course and by the end of the course you've got a solution to that, to that business challenge. Things like role plays, although role plays usually scares people. Using simulations, games, is very much in vogue at the moment, but really useful for getting good learning points out. Getting group work, whether it's a larger group or small group work, and then things like problem solving and stuff like that so if you actually every learning point that you build into your course needs to have an activity and that activity should change at least every 45 minutes so i think that's that's the key thing following on from that the uh, again it's part of the design as much as the delivery but it has to be clear that you're heading towards your objectives and achieving those objectives so when i was taught about developing training material it was it was about working backwards from the end result so what do we want to achieve how do we test to ensure that we've achieved that? And then how do we support people getting to a position where they can uh, successfully pass that test? I think that's a really important point because you're actually building a course based on a business need. So you develop a, um, a training aim. By the end of this course, people will be able to blah, blah, blah. And, and from that, you can build a set of mm. measurable objectives 
and actually you mentioned you mentioned testing or evaluation your quantifiable measurable objectives become the test at the end of the course so at the start of the course i said i would teach you the 10 key elements of whatever it is the test at the end of the course is right tell me the 10 key <laughs> key things and there you go you've you've kind of proved to the delegates and also to your boss that you've actually done what you said you were going to do I also think a really important thing is that you as a trainer take on the responsibility for, for other people's learning. So if somebody doesn't pass a test, it's, it's your fault for not facilitating the learning properly. Do you think that? Usually. Obviously, there are some cases where <laughs> maybe there's nothing more you could have done. But yeah, I, that's, that's the viewpoint I usually take. If that hasn't worked, then I think I've done something or I could have done something better. So what would you have done better in a session then? Would you be identifying that during the session? For a course that you're delivering multiple times, then if, if one or more people aren't getting something, then you need to go back and, and revisit that section of the course that, that hasn't been effective. I mean, of course, you could have people in the room that just, you know, possibly shouldn't mm. be there. But I think it's always good to take take it as, as your responsibility to make sure everybody gets through what you're trying to help them to learn i think another aspect that's important is the facilitation and and to have good good facilitation skills so in my experience one of the things that has the potential to to um, degrade the quality of a classroom training session if you like is is the lack of facilitation skills by somebody who's delivering that session and isn't really experienced and seasoned as a training professional. And I think that is applicable quite often in some of the, you know, with some of the clients that we work with, particularly where there's a situation where they've chosen to deliver the training themselves, but they're using people that aren't time-served professional trainers to do that. And you see then that sessions quickly lose value because trainers deviate from the scripts. They, you know, they go into too much detail in the wrong place and it becomes much more difficult I think for learners to 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 absorb and learn in that session and it adds less value for them because it becomes a little bit perhaps too technical or that it might be that a certain individual in the group who's quite strong starts to overpower if you like the rest of the group and naturally the other people sort of shy away and sort of uh, withdraw somewhat so you get that lack of interaction with the group as a whole no i think that's an important point i think the whole and that was one of the things i wanted to talk about next really was the train the trainer approach i agree with you i think a professional trainer can potentially deliver far better training than you know some 20 year expert in a certain field simply because your and facilitation is the right word to use rather than training because you're actually facilitating other people's learning but I think a professional trainer can do a far better job than somebody that's got a hundred times the level of knowledge that they have and that's simply because they use all the tools and techniques that help people to actually learn. Well that comes back to the point about learning objectives doesn't it so when you set out to do a classroom training course you, you you have a specific set of deliverables which not only defines what you are doing but probably excludes some other content as well so you want to avoid it turning into a discussion group workshop type session which with a non-professional trainer is possibly a risk because they might just want to explore areas that are not really what they're there to do yeah so i mean i've thought about train the trainer and what the, the type of things that you need to do to make a train the trainer successful and I guess some of them are really obvious but you actually use a professional trainer to pre-prepare and design and build the course and then when you get your SMEs or your subject matter experts in the room you teach them not only the content of the course but how to actually facilitate the learning as well and you explain to them you know why doing things a certain way are important. 
do you think there are certain people that are, are better at delivering training than, than others? Yes, naturally, I think people are more, you know, some people are more uh, tuned into that uh, and, you know, and have, you know, the qualities, if you like, and the interest and, and the desire to deliver that. But the one thing I was going to sort of revert back to around train the trainers, and it's just an observation over time, is that um, I think as more and more organisations have seen fit, if you like, to sort of reduce their their, their own um, learning and development resource internally and that's I've, I sense and you may or may not agree with this that um, uh, it, it's reduced the value of training the trainer back in the day if we had a train the trainer approach if we knew that that organization had their own qualified set of trainers that would be going on and delivering the content that, that, that potentially we had a part to play in building and setting up, then you knew that was probably going to be much more successful than most organizations that adopt that approach now because nine times out of ten, they haven't got their own trainers, so they're, they're reliant on SMEs and other individuals that have been in inverted commas selected to deliver training and aren't qualified trainers. So I think that's over time kind of devalued the merit of, of the train-the-trainer approach to a degree. And it's unusual, actually, because the current the client that I'm working with now strangely has quite a big, strong team, um, a training and development team, which is unusual. It's the very seldom that I come across an organization that has so much resource available in that department now. Most of the time, they have nothing or very little. So following, following on from that point, the other thing to consider is whether things are part of a project or part of business as usual. So you can deliver a train-the-trainer that will get trainers upskilled to deliver training as part of the project, but then that knowledge just potentially disappears if it's not effectively passed over into some more sustainable long-term training plan. Sorry, yes, I was going to say, Ali, I agree with that, because what, what, interestingly, and I don't know why this happens, but I have experienced on occasion whereby, because it's a project, there's almost a reluctance to connect that organization's own learning and development capability to what we're producing as part of the, you know, the learning piece within the project. So there is that disconnect. I mean, I, I've worked with clients whereby we haven't been allowed to talk to their own training team or their learning and development team um, because they are, quote, unquote, just doing business as usual stuff, which seems ludicrous to me. It's just interesting that, that the perception of certain organisations has changed over time in terms of the validity of training and development. So what, what other things can we do to... Cause I mean, I'm I'm trying to think think back to most of the projects I've worked on in the last four years, and the majority of them have been train the trainer, apart from one I think, which I did all the delivery for, but it was a fairly small audience. So, what other things can we do to make a train the trainer as effective as it needs to be? I think involving the people that will be ultimately delivering the trainers as early as possible, so they're immersed in the um, the context and the subject matter, is helpful. So, trying to do it as one organised event where they're coming in cold I, I find is quite difficult so if it's perhaps people that have been involved in UAT that's quite quite useful often to get them asking the same kind of questions that their uh, training delegates would ask. It's very much involving isn't it it's building the relationships with the right people on the project and the business as usual. So, uh, I'm just thinking back to one example that I did we'd, we were kind of, we'd been delivering this course for a while using some really smart people some kind of market trader research people so they were all very much leaders in their field to deliver some training on their particular 
area of expertise like metals trading and things like that and we actually had the evaluation scores and for some of them it was really really poor you know people would and it, because they were lecturing they were just talking at people for for two hours and people were just switching off after a couple of minutes as as people do and we did a we did a train the trainer program with them and it was great to see, you know, not only the, the increased level of engagement in the classroom, but also a vast improvement in, in the feedback scores. So that was quite a good motivator for people. You know, initially they just thought, why are you making me do this train the trainer course? I've been doing training for years. <laughs> and, and they were able to see a measurable difference in, in how their training was perceived, which was, which was, which was great. I think it's good for people to think about what's training they've been on and what's worked well for them and um, the things that they maybe haven't seen the workings of exactly, but they've they've had different experiences and maybe thinking about what goes into that. Why was that training better than that that training? And some of that will be about those engagement techniques and keeping uh, keeping people engaged and active and you know exercises and all those kind of things. And that's the key thing, I think, that whole engagement piece. And you you build and design the course for them to deliver. And then you sit in on the courses because it's very easy for, for people just to ignore your course and do their revert to their lecturing techniques. But if you can somehow prove to them that actually if you do this, it will be more effective, um, whether it's through testing or evaluation scores, then I think that works well. How, how do you convince your customer as to what is the best blend or the best way of, of delivering training? I think it's it's a challenge. Um, I'll give you an example. I recently went into a mobile phone company, which you would think, given it was a mobile phone industry, it would be very up to date on technology and ways of working. So they want to think they wanted to go ahead with classroom training for people in a contact centre. And it was just, you know, I, I saw decks, decks of slides for about 90 slides, which just makes you sort of take a big sigh, doesn't it, and step yeah, back. every time. So I started talking to them about understanding why they brought people into a classroom, what the objective was, and what their, you know, because contact centres are on a, on a time, aren't they? They can only have a certain amount of time away from the phone. Mm. And away from their desk. So it's just understanding their ways of working, their objectives, their core KPIs, that sort of thing, to try and bring in an idea around, have you thought about this as in point of need learning, a digital adoption platform? So that's how I've done it. Not saying it's the right way, but it's just how I how I thought about it. I think you often go into a new customer and they've, they've already got a, f- a fixed idea about how they want to do something. So it may be that we want to do e-learning or we just want to do classroom delivery. I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with a bit at the moment is they wanted to do classroom training, but their audience is literally all over the country and it can be anybody. It's a, it's a public body. So potentially, you know, you've got an audience of tens of thousands of people. Now, of course, you can't train all of those people in the classroom. You're going to have to do a level of e-learning. Now, it may be it may be legitimate that yes we should take some of those more regular users into a classroom but and quite often you do have to have that argument and and more often than not you've got we want to do a two-day course and we want no more than 50 slides and it's like well that's you know you're ask you're putting the, the cart before the horse we need to do a proper training needs analysis and then we'll come up with a strategy based on you know all of the the data and the information that we've got but yeah, you do often have to deal with those preconceptions of, of, of what training actually is. 
And that, that's if you get the luxury of being able to follow the process from step one through, as in strategy and needs analysis. If you're sort of launched into a project because it's all going very wrong, it's sort of you're coming in halfway through the process, really. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and that can often be the case. You know, I've, I've gone into projects before. You know, we're going live in three weeks. We haven't thought about the training yet. What can you do? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and that's very much a case of dealing with the constraints that you've got and, and coming up with something that's going to be as effective as, as, as possible. Those are the kind of situations where you need somebody who is a subject matter expert and a training expert so they can just hit the ground and and spend a, a week or two getting their heads around the technology and then, and then go and deliver it in the classroom. I was just going to add that I think sometimes it's down to cost versus value in that argument. Sometimes you'll you, you know you know you'll talk to a client and they just no longer see the value of classroom training. It's more expensive. It's more difficult to set up potentially. There's more work involved to make classroom training good quality you know you've got to have facilities and resources and so on and so forth and I think sometimes now you see that clients just struggle to see the value uh, and therefore choose something which is they feel is better value because it's cheaper because it uses more technology-based training so more e-learning or or or, you know or even training that's remote training over school like a webex you know, and, and it, sometimes it's difficult to have the conversation with them when you know or to get them to see the value uh, of actual face-to-face classroom training because we can see that there's, in some cases, there is definitely benefits to do that type of delivery with that particular client because of all sorts of reasons, because of the, the literacy skills of their people, the location, the facilities, the content, the knowledge gap, if you like, that you're trying to close, what they need to learn and, and so on and so forth. There's many, many reasons. But quite often it boils down to a cost versus value conversation mm-hmm. and more often than not, cost wins. I'll tell you a good story, actually. I, I, I once went in to do a, a pitch to a very large utilities company that wanted me to go and talk about our experience of experiential learning and I went in and started talking about we can do these whiteboard exercises we can do some small group work we can use yellow stickers and and obviously this this just they were just looking at me just thinking you know this guy's it was quite obvious from the body language it wasn't what they wanted so I sort of stopped what I was doing and said look I'm obviously wider the mark here what what are you thinking and they went well when we used when we introduced some new working practices a few years ago what we actually did is we hired a, a like a quite a big warehouse and we built a mock street with with a full you know uh, and we installed all of the you know the new pipes and and technology that the people were going to have to use and then we opened it with like a champagne reception we had a big th- mock theater curtain and we opened up the curtains and people walked through the stage and then we sort of did some breakout groups and then looked at the new processes and how the new technology was going <laughs> to going to work so you you know you're looking at at least hundreds of thousands of pounds. It was just interesting that I'd got it so wide of the mark wrong. It was it was almost kind of funny really. But wouldn't it be great to be able to get involved in something like that? Champagne reception, yes. <laughs> I might have exaggerated about the champagne reception. Oh but, right, okay. A mock street sounds cool though. Yeah, it's very cool. The other point about the classroom training that I would think is maybe important to make is about the preparation for the session being quite vital so it's not just about what you do on the day but it's making sure you've you're fully familiar with all the content you know how you're going to run and deliver the course you've got good broad knowledge so you can answer questions with credibility um so so you're not just you know keeping an extremely narrow um 
path sort of why you do need to stick to your objectives you you do still need to display that you have a broader knowledge of the subject um so so a lot of it's just about having that uh, position of respect and authority to some extent. Well, the other way you can are. the other way you can get that is by having a you know an SME in the room with you. So quite often that's what people will do. They'll use a uh, a professional trainer, but have somebody from the business in there as well. So if they get any tricky technical questions, um, you've got somebody in the from the business to actually help out as well. That works quite yeah, well. Yeah, I've done I've, I've done that a few times. And I, I I do like that. That does does work very well because you can do a bit of a double act and it gives you a bit of a, a breather as much as anything because it is quite hard work delivering training. Yeah. Um. So if you can sort of hand over a section to to the business SME to deliver, that's maybe something more more business specific. I've also found as well if you've actually got that person in the room for the first you know two three four sessions, then you actually get the knowledge. Most of the questions that you're going to get asked, you learn the answer to yourself anyway. And if not, you can always you know get back to people with with the correct answer after the event. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, you're right. And and, and over time, the training professional ends up absorbing the additional business context or the the deep deeper information that they need to be able to answer a high proportion of the questions that are likely to come in it's true and also i think that works the other way as well because over time the more sessions that happen you know where you have that um, you have that professional trainer accompanied by a subject matter expert some of the some of the challenges and the skills if you like and the qualities of the trainer rub off on the subject matter expert so i think i've seen examples where you know, you know, at the end of that exercise, the subject matter expert has more empathy with what it takes to be a good quality trainer. Yeah, I've often heard that as well. It said, you know, that, oh, that section worked really well, didn't it? And you, you've got to think that, that, you know, hopefully they will do something similar in the future. I'll tell you one thing we should talk about is you, you mentioned problems. Dealing with difficult people in the classroom. I mean, thankfully, in, in, in corporate training, you very rarely get difficult characters in the classroom, but you're always going to get people that don't want to be in there. You sometimes get disruptive people, whether through just because they're being silly or whether maybe they're just contributing too much or trying to be funny. You, you, maybe you get the distracted people. Let's talk about some techniques of, of dealing with difficult people. Generally, if people are awkward, I've always passed the question to someone else in the audience to make you know, to show that person that they look silly, but not quite like that, if that makes sense. So this is the this, this scenario where somebody's asked a, a, a daft question, a non-relevant question, or something yeah. just to be awkward, and then you basically sort of pass that back, reverse that question back to yeah. the group and say, what are the rest? What do you think, Tracy? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, quite often that works. I mean, that, not, not so much in, in this role, but when I used to work in a previous company, it was very much that case, you know, di- training salespeople and they were you know why am I here but that all stems back to the preparation for training doesn't it and getting the comms right and that sort of thing so people know why their bums are on that seat for that session and what what about the people that maybe contribute too much and and don't let other people get a word in address how do you, how should you deal with those people I think the traditional approach to that is to try and pair people up so if you have someone that's not contributing a lot and someone who is then you can kind of partner them up so they're almost acting as a kind of support because they're getting what they want in that they're being able to show off their knowledge and all that kind of thing but the other person is getting a bit more one-to-one support you can also deal with these people by basically saying you know having a quiet word during a break or something like that you know i really welcome your contribution it's critical but i'm really keen to give other people a chance as well and i think it's also completely legitimate if people are behaving badly i think it's legitimate to ask them to leave do you think? Yeah, definitely. 
I, th- I think it's a bit of a three strikes type thing, isn't it? You, you know, you try and give them a chance to to uh, improve their behaviour, but if they're persisting, then then at some point you have to have that uh, you know nuclear option. Yeah, definitely. Agreed, and I think that gets back to the facilitation skills, doesn't it? So you, you've got to be able to give people a fair chance, but also if, if ultimately if they're not going to not going to sort of alter their behaviour and it's becoming disruptive and it's affecting the learning for everybody else in the group, you've got to take some sort of action. You've got to keep control of that session in some way, whether it is like a quiet word with them on a, on a coffee break or ideally we'd never get to the point where you sort of order somebody out of the room but I guess that could happen if they continue to refuse refused to alter their behavior and it, it, you know you could call an end to the session and say look we're going to do this another time yeah I agree I don't, I don't think I've ever done it but there may be circumstances when that's probably what you have to do yeah, I've never had to do it, but I, I have heard of examples where it has happened to other people. I did hear a tale once uh, in an organisation that I used to work in many years ago, and it was somebody quite senior, literally was being quite abusive to the trainer. Um, you know, and that trainer in the end took so much and, and, and then had to call a halt to the session. Wow. And, and the person that was in question was very senior in that organisation, but clearly didn't agree or didn't didn't agree with what what was coming out in the content or the messaging but it did happen and it's interesting that people sometimes people i i i find and this is uh, and this is the truth and i have got experience of this sometimes you find that it, sometimes it can be surprising how people's behavior can change somebody you think is perhaps a little bit of a shrinking violent violet is is quite vocal in the training session and, and conversely the other way somebody who's very outspoken in the office when they're getting a classroom becomes really sort of quiet and withdrawn so you've got to be able to recognize that and sort of draw that out of them and because really you want everybody to be participating equally and contributing equally don't you too i think another thing that uh, people don't tend to consider is, is is keeping to time and i know it seems a really small thing but i think if you say a course is going to finish at four o'clock or five o'clock i think it's important that you do finish there or thereabouts and if not get agreement with everybody to carry on as i certainly find that right you said you were going to finish at five it's five o'clock now i'm that's it i'm gone and i think that is quite a common reaction so i think it seems a little thing but i think it's actually quite important the thing about getting agreement more generally i think is important as well so i've, I've never done it but i think some people do set up a, a contract almost at the beginning of the session and explicitly say i will agree to do these things if you will agree to do these things and that includes being on time it includes being engaged and not looking at your phones but it also includes the trainer responding respectfully to questions and yeah, aiming to, towards the objectives those kind of things um but but it, but generally you would think that would be implied but but sometimes it can be helpful to make it more worth reinstating i did when i did my 30 odd years ago when I did my first training course as in to teach me how to be a trainer we rocked up on the after the first break we were kind of you know walking in five minutes kind of late behind the agreed time and the trainer had actually started training she started delivering the training to an empty room I thought that was great we weren't late again because <laughs> we knew what was going to happen if we were so the other type of difficult person you might get in the classroom is someone who won't properly engage with the session and won't pay attention and um, if people have laptops in the room then people that are clearly on emails or, or on their phone um, and just not engaging with the session properly so I was wondering if people had any thoughts about how you might get those people to 
stop what they're doing and I engage think you properly just with have the content. To set the rules at the start of the course. We won't. Laptops aren't going to be open. Mm. If if I would rather, if you need to look at emails, let's take a break. Do we need to take more regular breaks? Do we need to finish earlier? Because you know you're here mm. to learn. You're not here to answer emails and to do other stuff. So whilst you're, you know, this whole myth of mm-hmm. multitasking, it, it, it just doesn't work. So you can only, you should only be concentrating on one thing at a time. It is often the most senior people in the room that do it as well. I find so I'm, they're too it, important. It absolutely so. is, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and that, and I, that's one of the reasons why I'm quite a strong advocate for setting up a proper training environment. So you know, the whole environment of being in that training session is that wherever it's possible, when people, if they have to perform tasks on a computer as part of the training, then that's not their own computer. Ideally, it's a it's a you know a proper training computer that's set up with a prescribed build and and perhaps that it's anonymous so that people can't be distracted by going off and searching the internet or answering emails or doing whatever they might ordinarily try and do because then everybody it's fair for everybody maybe maybe get everyone to put their put their phones in a in a basket at the the classroom or something well that concludes this episode on training delivery in our next podcast we're going to be talking about training evaluation Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us for the next one.